You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 253, The Battle of Connecticut Farms. Now, we last left the main armies around New York City in episode 246 in the spring of 1780. For nearly four years, Washington had kept his main army just outside of New York City, waiting for an opportunity to recapture what he had lost. Britain, of course, had captured New York City and the surrounding islands in 1776, but since then had seen almost no success in being able to expand outside of the city and permanently occupy the region around it. The British had used New York as a base to launch other major offensives, such as the capture of Philadelphia or Newport, Rhode Island, but they had had to withdraw from both of those possessions after a short time anyway. A British General Clinton hoped to end this stalemate by capturing Charleston and beginning a new offensive in the South. And in doing so, he took the bulk of his army, leaving New York in its weakest state since the British had captured it in 1776. Hessian General Niphausen held the region with only a few thousand soldiers, mostly Hessians and Loyalist militia, while Clinton and his other top generals were down in South Carolina. But if British defenses in New York were weak, the Continentals were even weaker. Washington's army was starving and on the verge of mutiny. The Continentals were in no condition to launch a major spring offensive against New York. The British Navy still controlled the waters around New York, meaning that even if the Americans did somehow retake the city, they would be vulnerable to being surrounded and captured. Consequently, General Washington waited for the promised arrival of a French army and a French fleet to help him deliver the final blow to the British in New York. With much of the British forces in the South, the Connecticut Navy did manage to get one of its frigates out of Connecticut and into the Atlantic Ocean around this time. Congress had approved the 28-gun Trumbull to be built in 1775, but shortages and delays meant that this was her maiden voyage, leaving in May 1780. Captain James Nicholson commanded a crew of about 200 men. Nicholson was the most senior captain in the Continental Navy ahead of more notable men such as John Paul Jones or John Barry. Most accounts I've read say that he received his position of prominence mostly because he came from a wealthy and well-connected family in Maryland at a time when Congress was trying to get southern states more involved in the war. Nicholson was an experienced officer, though. He was with the British fleet when they invaded Havana at the end of the Seven Years' War. In the Revolution, his career had been rather shall we say, undistinguished. Captain Nicholson lost his first ship, the Virginia, when it ran aground in the Chesapeake Bay, trying to escape from a British ship. The captain fled, leaving his ship and crew to be captured. He returned the next day under a flag of truce, 
but only to collect his personal property from the captured ship. Despite this, Congress gave him command of the Iris, but he lost that too after his crew refused to fight. Nicholson's command of the Trumbull in 1780 seemed like a final opportunity to prove himself worthy of his command. When the Trumbull spotted a sail in the Atlantic about 250 miles north of Bermuda, Captain Nicholson closed in for the attack. The other ship turned out to be the Watt, a British privateer out of Liverpool. The 32-gun Watt and the 28-gun Trumbull were pretty evenly matched as they approached one another. The two ships sailed within firing range in the early afternoon of June 1st and opened fire. A battle ensued for about two and a half hours, with the ships circling each other at nearly point-blank range and firing as fast as they could. Both ships took serious damage and were in danger of sinking. Eventually, the Watts sailed away to New York. The Trumbull was too damaged to pursue and instead headed to Boston for repairs. The American crew took about 40 casualties to the Watts' 90. But since neither ship managed to capture or sink the other, the battle is generally considered a draw. Back on land, though, the armies in New York and New Jersey, with limited manpower, mostly struggled to first survive the freezing winter and await reinforcements. In late May, word of the British capture of Charleston reached New York. Hessian General Niphausen knew that General Clinton would return to New York, but exactly when was uncertain. It had taken the British fleet more than a month to sail down from New York to Charleston in bad weather. Clinton had sent word to Niphausen that he was on his way and that Niphausen should be prepared to launch an offensive against the Continentals once he returned. But those messages never reached New York, so Niphausen was left in the dark. As I said, even without orders, Niphausen knew that Clinton was going to return. Niphausen had received intelligence that the Continental Army under Washington at Morristown had fallen to about 3,500 men. He also knew that the enemy was starving and on the verge of mutiny. Niphausen saw an opportunity to sweep into northern New Jersey, hit Morristown, and possibly destroy what remained of Washington's army. Supporting Niphausen's plan to invade New Jersey, were New Jersey's royal governor, William Franklin, and New York's governor, James Robertson. Governor Franklin, of course, of New Jersey, had been forced from his position in 1776 and had been taken prisoner by the rebels. This son of Benjamin Franklin remained in a Connecticut jail for two years before finally being exchanged in a prisoner swap. He was sent to British-occupied New York, where he consistently advocated for aggressive actions to recapture New Jersey. He also helped organize militia, often to use as guerrilla raids into New Jersey. James Robertson had only arrived in New York a few weeks earlier. While Clinton was away taking Charleston, London replaced New York Governor William Tryon with Robertson. Now you remember that Tryon and Clinton had clashed regularly, Tryon advocated using the army to attack civilian targets, which Clinton opposed. Tryon really wanted to destroy morale among the patriots by imposing destruction and misery, and Clinton had a very different policy. Now, during that period, Tryon was an army general and had to take orders from General Clinton. But since he was also governor of New York, he had authority to act on his own in his civilian capacity. And this often led to conflicts. 
Clinton's complaining about this eventually led to Robertson replacing Tryon as governor of New York. Now, Tryon remained in New York as a major general, but of course he was frustrated that Clinton would not give him a command after his raids against Connecticut towns in 1779. So while Tryon was around for the summer, he would eventually return to London in September of 1780. Now his replacement, James Robertson, was also a major general in the regular army. His background is a bit unusual. He was the son of a Scottish freeholder. Uh, Robertson did not come from poverty, but his family did not have a title or political connections, and it certainly did not have enough money to buy a commission for him. Robertson got his start in military life by enlisting in the Marines. He was one of the very few men of his time who started as a private, but was then able to receive a commission as an officer through merit. He showed conspicuous bravery and leadership in several actions, including some under Admiral Vernon in the West Indies, where he served along with Lawrence Washington, a young colonist whose half-brother George would later rise to prominence. In 1746, Robertson was able to raise enough money to purchase a captaincy in the regular army. Robertson had cultivated the patronage of several powerful men, including the Earl of Loudoun. That, along with a marriage to an Englishwoman who brought a substantial dowry, permitted him to advance in rank. He served in America during the French and Indian War, primarily as a staff officer in charge of quartermaster and other administrative duties. Even so, his abilities and his political connections allowed him to rise in rank. The British commander, Geoffrey Amherst, helped Robertson receive his lieutenant colonelcy. He then served under General Thomas Gage as barrack master for North America, responsible for the quartering of regulars, something that became a point of contention in the early 1770s. As open rebellion in the colonies grew closer, Robertson received his commission as brigadier general in America, which would only apply as long as he remained in America and did not come with a bump in pay. Robertson was in Boston during the Lexington and Bunker Hill battles. His duties remained administrative. Although he regularly volunteered to lead men into combat, he remained sidelined, eventually evacuating Boston in early 1776 with the rest of the army. Robertson did lead a battalion at the Battle of Long Island, but it was only in the second wave meaning he really didn't see much combat. His administrative skills and ability to work with locals helped him to win an appointment as military commandant of occupied New York. Now there, he gained a reputation in that role as a man of compassion, someone who did not create unnecessary suffering, even for rebels, but at the same time he was focused on restoring the king's authority. In February of 1777, Robertson returned to London carrying General Howe's dispatches about the rebel attacks on Trenton and Princeton. Robertson spent considerable time in London with Lord Germain, mostly supporting General Howe's leadership. Although two years later, in 1779, Robertson testified extensively before Parliament where he was highly critical of General Howe's actions that had allowed the Continental Army to escape New York and then strike back. He also advocated for a policy that stressed diplomacy with the colonists and less reliance on brute military force. Robertson believed the colonists were mostly disposed to being loyalists if treated properly. 
It was during this time when Robertson was supporting Germain against Howe in the parliamentary hearings that Germain decided to appoint Robertson as the new governor of New York, although it would be another year before Robertson actually took this position. His commission was signed in May of 1779, but Robertson did not arrive in New York City until March of 1780. And of course, at that time, General Clinton was down in South Carolina and General Niphausen was debating his plans to attack the Continentals in New Jersey. Now, even though Niphausen had received no word from General Clinton, the support of Governor Robertson and New Jersey Governors Franklin gave him enough backing to proceed with an invasion into New Jersey. The governors were convinced that the Continentals were on the verge of collapse and that the long-suffering local New Jersey population would welcome a return to peace, stability, and prosperity under the king's rule if only the British would show up and give them that needed push. The British assembled a force of about 6,000 regulars, Hessians, and Loyalists split into two divisions. The first came under the command of Brigadier General Thomas Sterling. The second command was under Major General Edward Matthew. There was also a third smaller division, which Niphausen commanded himself, along with General Tryon, which would also cross into New Jersey and be available as needed. Now, the plan was to cross the harbor into New Jersey at night, landing in Elizabethtown at about midnight on the morning of June 7th. From there, Sterling's division would march north to capture Springfield and Hobart's Gap, while the ships that had brought them to New Jersey would return to New York and continue ferrying Matthews' division over to Elizabethtown. Sterling's capture of Hobart's Gap would give the British a relatively straight shot to Morristown, where they would attack what remained of Washington's main army. General Washington, of course, was well aware of the dangers of a British offensive. The British had made several forays into New Jersey over the winter. The Continental officer with overall responsibility for American defenses was Major General William Alexander, Lord Sterling, who had lived in New Jersey for a long time before the war, and by the way was no relation to the British division commander Thomas Sterling. More directly responsible for the area was Brigadier General William Maxwell, also a Continental general from New Jersey. As the British began their landing at Elizabethtown in the early nighttime hours of June 7th, Maxwell's New Jersey militia opened fire. Now, there were only a few dozen defenders to hold off a landing of thousands of enemy soldiers, so there was no expectation that this would be anything other than harassing fire. The militia, however, managed to hit General Sterling. He would survive, but command of the division fell to Hessian Colonel Ludwig von Worm. The ensuing confusion slowed the move out of Elizabethtown. Meanwhile, the militia commander at Elizabethtown, Colonel Elias Dayton, sent word to General Maxwell and General Washington that a landing of several thousand soldiers from the enemy was taking place in Elizabethtown. Within hours, Washington was personally leading his Continentals toward the battle while also sending out alerts for the local militia to turn out. Around dawn, Colonel Verm began his 1st Division's march out of Elizabethtown toward an alerted countryside full of angry Continentals and militia. Colonel Dayton had pulled back his militia to the small village of Connecticut Farms, an area around modern day of Union, New Jersey, about four miles inland. 
his militia tore up several bridges along the way to slow the British advance. At Connecticut Farms, they were joined by more local militia and backed up by General Maxwell, who had deployed the 1st and 2nd New Jersey regiments to prevent a British flanking maneuver against the militia. When the British division under Colonel Verm arrived after daylight, the commander sent out probes to test the enemy's size and position. A short time later, General Niphausen himself arrived on the scene with his 3rd Division. The Americans managed to fight an effective rearguard action, giving up each house and piece of land at a cost for the attackers. The British force, which was mostly Hessian and Loyalist, had been aggravated by a night of constant harassing fire and let loose on the village, looting and burning the homes. One of the homes was that of Reverend James Caldwell, an infamous rebel, according to Loyalists. Caldwell was known as the Fighting Parson, having regularly used his sermons to support the Patriot cause and the fight against the King's rule. Loyalists had burned his church in Elizabethtown a year earlier, at which point he had moved his family to the relative safety of Connecticut farms. Reverend Caldwell had also served as chaplain with Maxwell's regiments, and at the time of the attack he was in Morristown with his main Continental Army. Although most civilians had abandoned their homes, Caldwell's wife and children remained behind. Later accounts state that a Hessian soldier deliberately shot his wife, Hannah Caldwell, as she and her children cowered in the kitchen of their home. Whether it was deliberate murder or an accident, Hannah Caldwell was killed instantly by an enemy bullet. The soldiers then burned the home as the children and maid fled for their lives. The murder would soon become another rallying cry for the Americans. By about 9.30 in the morning, the British had taken Connecticut farms and then paused again to await the arrival of more reinforcements as well as baggage and artillery. The Americans, under General Maxwell, continued to grow as more militia arrived from the surrounding area. By 11 a.m., Maxwell ordered an assault on the British lines, having acquired enough men for a frontal assault as well as attacks on both the right and left enemy flanks. Under some heated hand-to-hand -hand combat, the British held their positions and drove back the Americans, who retreated back to a bridge over the Rahway River. Now, Niphausen had no interest in pursuing the Americans until his reinforcements arrived. Instead, he dug in and began building entrenchments. A bit later, General Robertson arrived, and although he had no command of his own in this action, the governor had come over from New Jersey on his own and decided to bring with him the regiment that Niphausen had left at Elizabethtown to hold that key port. Niphausen was annoyed that Robertson had removed his guard, holding what he needed to be for his retreat, should the Americans get the better of them, but he didn't press the matter since starting a quarrel with the new governor would only cause problems for him later. As the British dug in at Connecticut Farms, Washington moved the bulk of his main army to Short Hills, a few miles to the north. With him were his top generals, including von Steuben, Lafayette, and Green. The main army, though, did not join in the fight. Instead, they took defensive positions in case the British pushed through the thin American lines and continued to move north toward Morristown. As night fell, the British under Niphausen remained at Connecticut Farms, getting a poor night's sleep as they had to remain on alert for attack. Washington held a council of war and discussed the idea of making a pre-dawn attack on the British camp, 
However, a strong rain began to fall around midnight, and that pretty much scuttled any such plans. The New Jersey militia kept up a harassing fire for most of the night, at least until the rain began, which forced the British and the Hessians to burn through much of their ammunition in return fire and get little rest. The following morning, Kniphausen took the advice of General Tryon to burn all the buildings at Connecticut Farms as punishment for the American resistance. Kniphausen's goal of taking Morristown was dead by this time. The Americans had taken up good defensive positions in the hills, and more militia seemed to be turning out by the hour. That evening, Kniphausen ordered the British to return to Elizabethtown and retreat back across the water to New York. Another evening thunderstorm prevented the Americans from pursuing the retreating British. When he learned about it the following morning, Washington remained cautious that the retreat could be a ruse to get the Americans out of their defensive positions and fight them on an open field. So he kept the bulk of his army in its defenses and sent a division of only about 800 men under General Edward Hand to harass the enemy's retreat. Kniphausen left a couple of regiments of regulars and Hessians to hold a rearguard action as he moved the last of his army back across the water to Staten Island. By the morning of June 9th, the British were back on Staten Island, or already back in Manhattan, and the battle was at an end. The Americans had taken a few dozen casualties, while the British had taken nearly 200. The bulk of these were wounded Hessians who were in the fight with Maxwell's attack on the morning of the first day of fighting. The Americans also reported capturing several dozen stragglers who did not retreat quickly enough with the rest of the army. While the British failed to take their objective, they weren't done yet either. And we'll take up a continuation of the story next week when we cover the Battle of Springfield. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Train Ants, George Davis, and Mike Hager, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard and Knox Press. Check out knoxpress.com for the latest releases of books about the American Revolution and many other parts of American history. Thanks also to Brian Gulamet, James Colpass, David Farinek, Kyle Ramones, and Reese Delino, who join at the Standard Bearer level last month. I'm getting ready to ship all you guys your first monthly flag magnet. Now, this week we covered the Battle of Connecticut Farms in New Jersey. The main theater of war had moved to the Carolinas by this time, 
but General Clinton still hoped that he could make more progress in the North. And Niphausen's decision to raid Connecticut farms before Clinton had all the troops back from Carolina ruined those plans. Reverend Caldwell, who I mentioned in this week's episode, was a pretty interesting character. He's going to appear again next time as well. The murder of his wife Hannah really did stir up more local anger, particularly against the Hessians. In some way, she became New Jersey's Jane McRae. The Reverend would only live another year himself. An American sentry shot and killed Caldwell in 1781 after the Reverend refused to let the guard investigate a package. There's actually some evidence that the sentry, James Morgan, might have been paid to kill Caldwell. There wasn't good proof of payment, but regardless, a jury found Morgan guilty of murder and he was hanged a short time later. Caldwell left behind nine orphaned children, and the town of Caldwell, New Jersey, is named in his honor. My book recommendation this week is called The Battles of Connecticut Farms and Springfield by Edward Lengel. It's a fairly short book, just over 100 pages, but it really covers just the Battle of Connecticut Farms, which I covered this week, and Springfield, which I'm going to talk about next time. There's really little more added to it, so that's why it's so short. I bought my copy of this book at the American Revolution Conference in Williamsburg earlier this year, and I had the opportunity to have Mr. Lengel sign my copy at the conference. My online recommendation is a biography called The Life of William Alexander, Earl of Sterling, Major General in the Army of the United States during the Revolution, with selections from his correspondence, by William A. Dewar. Lord Sterling is widely forgotten by history, despite his critical role as a major general during the war. This is a really early biography from, I think, the 1840s, which covers not only his life, but also copies much of the correspondence from this critical era. So if you want to read more about Lord Sterling, you'll want to check out this online ebook, which is available, of course, at archive.org, and I've included direct links on my blog and website. My question this week asks, why was American colony representation in Parliament unacceptable to the powers that be in England? Well, colonial representation in Parliament was not unacceptable to everyone in Britain. Several members of Parliament actually broached the idea of granting the colonies representation in Parliament with some of the colonial agents who were in Britain at the time, including Benjamin Franklin. The colonies, however, did not want that. When they were talking about taxation without representation, they wanted taxing authority to remain with their colonial legislatures, which represented them. Now, unlike modern legislatures, Parliament did not give out seats based on population. Many less favored districts were really underrepresented in Parliament, and that is likely what the colonies would have received. Token representation would not really mean much since Parliament could enact whatever oppressive taxes or other rules it wanted over the dissents of a few colonial representatives. Parliament would not have been keen on proportional representation. The colonies that eventually rebelled had a population of about 2 million, not counting Native Americans. The UK at this time had a population of about 8 million. This means the colonies would hold about 20% of Parliament. If you include Native American representation, and you also start offering representation to other British colonies around the world, that's going to grow a lot higher very quickly. Given that population growth in the colonies was much heavier than in the UK, 
the members of Parliament from Britain would quickly find themselves minorities in their own legislature. So Parliament was never going to agree to full representation based on population. And since direct representation was a non-starter for the colonies if it only had a token number, and proportional representation was not acceptable to Parliament, there was really no consensus for a way to provide representation. Now, the colonies also had another reason to reject this solution. Travel from Britain to America took at least a month. If winds were not good or there were other problems, travel could take two months or even more. Some ships were forced to make detours, requiring voyages of three or four months. Ocean voyages in the 18th century were hard and dangerous. Ships sank, disease ran rampant on ships, delays at sea could result in a lack of adequate water or other necessities to even complete the voyage. These difficulties made it unrealistic to expect members of Parliament to travel across the Atlantic several times each year. Americans expected to meet with their representatives regularly, meaning this arrangement simply would not work. George III ruled over many parts of the British Empire that were not governed by Parliament. Ireland, Bengal, the Caribbean Islands, Hanover, and what is today Germany. The American colonies believed they were subjects of the king, like all these other areas, but were not ruled by Parliament. They were ruled by their own colonial governments. Many colonists accepted that Parliament had some additional powers to regulate trade within the empire, but Parliament could not rule on domestic matters within a colony. Members of Parliament believed otherwise. Although Parliament often left local issues up to colonial legislatures, which were overseen by the Privy Council, Parliament could legislate on behalf of the entire empire on all matters whatsoever. That was the point of dispute that eventually led to war. That said, there could have been other political solutions. Joseph Galloway, who attended the First Continental Congress as a Pennsylvania delegate, proposed that the colonies form a permanent Continental Congress that would share power with Parliament. This would assure that colonial representation would have at least some say in matters that affected the colonies. Galloway's solution did not receive much support in the Continental Congress, and when he went over to London a couple years later and tried to peddle it there, it didn't receive much favorability there either. As a result, neither side could agree to a political compromise, and as the king put it, blows must decide the matter. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on social media. I'm active on Twitter, Facebook, and Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast.